Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. That can be found in the Pew Bible on page 876. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word, the word of Christ, and that you attend the preaching of the word by your Holy Spirit. We're asking you, O God, to use this ordinary means of grace, what to the world appears very foolish, to do marvelous things among us today. Would you use your Holy Spirit to attend the preaching of the word with power today so that those who are outside of Christ might be saved even today, O God, and that we who've believed would be built up in our faith. We're desperate for you to use your word in that way for your glory and for our good. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. One month from tomorrow is going to be the vernal equinox. That's a day when we're going to have the same amount of daylight and nighttime for a 24-hour period. Vernal equinox is better known as the first day of spring. So, on Monday, March 20th, we'll be able to say to each other, in truth, spring has sprung. And indeed, it will have arrived. Now, the average high temperature in Vermont (laughs) in March is in the upper 30s to lower 40s. 
In other words, not very spring-like. On March 20th, spring will have truly arrived, but we won't see flowers budding and pollen settling on cars. We won't have exchanged our darn tufts and flannel for flip-flops and t-shirts. Spring will have indeed come, but not in its fullness. That won't come until well after March 20th. So too with the kingdom of God. And in particular, with the arrival of the king of the kingdom of God, the son of man. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to have come? What doesn't it mean, at least not yet, for the kingdom of God to have come? What sorts of things accompany the coming of the kingdom? And how should you live in light of the arrival of the kingdom and in light of its impending fuller arrival? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose words are recorded for us in our text today, is going to answer those questions. But before we hear from Jesus, here in Luke chapter 17 and verse 20, we hear first from the Pharisees, this sect of Jewish religious leaders that have so often opposed and schemed against Jesus up till now in the Gospel of Luke. The Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. Like other Jews who took the Old Testament seriously, the Pharisees were looking eagerly for the coming of the kingdom of God, Maybe you remember from back in chapter 14, the Pharisee or the lawyer who said to Jesus uh, when the Lord was eating at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, he says to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. They were looking for the kingdom. They knew that the Lord had prophesied to David in a covenant in 2 Samuel 7 that God would establish the throne of the son of David forever. And so whether they intend to start a controversy with Jesus by asking this question or whether it's the rare instance of a genuine inquiry by the Pharisees to Jesus, they ask him in verse 20, when the kingdom of God would come. Now, the fact that they're asking Jesus this question, regardless of their demeanor or their intent, is in and of itself problematic. Because the evidence that they already have from Jesus should have revealed to them that the kingdom of God has broken in. Do you remember when Jesus was accused of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, back in chapter 11? What does the Lord say? If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, which he's just done, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In chapter 10 of Luke, when Jesus sends out the 72 and charges them to heal miraculously, the sick in the towns that receive them. Jesus tells them to say, after they've worked healing, the kingdom of God has come near. And so the miracles that Jesus has performed, some miracles in the very midst of these Pharisees, including, perhaps, the miraculous healing of ten lepers, if the teaching in our text today was given right after the episode that we saw last week, Jesus' miracles should have been all the evidence they needed that the kingdom of God had come. Nevertheless, here at the beginning of verse 20, they asked Jesus when the kingdom would come. And beginning with the rest of verse 20 and going through the end of the chapter, he's answering that question. But first the Lord tells the Pharisees 
how the kingdom isn't coming or hasn't come. He says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. If, not, if you're not using the English standard version of the Bible that I'm preaching from and that Jason read from earlier, your translation might say the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed or with observation. Verse 20 here says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. I understand Jesus to be saying that the kingdom isn't coming with signs that have to be carefully interpreted. Remember, back in chapter 12, Jesus condemned the crowds to whom he was teaching because they knew that when a cloud was rising in the west, they say, a shower is coming. When they saw a south wind blowing, they say, there will be scorching heat. But that's not how the kingdom arrives, Jesus is saying. It arrives unmistakably. But these folks nevertheless miss it because, again, as he says back in chapter 12, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Folks who are looking for the arrival of the kingdom of God don't need to be watching the skies for signs in the way that they see a cloud and think, oh, here comes rain, or they see a south wind and think it's going to be a scorcher. No. Jesus says that the sign that the kingdom of God has arrived is standing before them. The sign that the kingdom of God has broken in is talking to them. Behold, he says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. When Jesus came to earth, the kingdom of God came with him. When disciples of John the Baptist ask Jesus in chapter 7 if he is the one who is to come or, or shall we look for another, John is asking essentially the same question that the Pharisees have asked. And Jesus says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. We heard as recently as a couple of weeks back as pastors Eric and Craig preached chapter 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. John the Baptist was appointed by God to be the forerunner prophet of the Messiah, but John has now given way to Jesus and now the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. It's broken in with the advent of Jesus. Do you remember how Jesus' public ministry begins in Luke's gospel? Back in chapter 4, he's at the synagogue on the Sabbath in his hometown of Nazareth. And he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and unrolls it to almost the end and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Lord's quoting from Isaiah 61 there in Luke 4. That's a prophecy of the servant of the Lord who would be the conquering king for God's people. And Jesus says to them in that Nazarene synagogue after reading from Isaiah, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus' teaching and his miracles have been saying over and over in multifaceted ways, the kingdom of God has come to earth in me. When will the kingdom of God come, Pharisees? 
Look at me. The kingdom of God is here. It's in the midst of you now. And yet, much like March 20th is indeed the first of spring, but spring will not have arrived in its fullness until, oh, the middle of June. <laughs> the kingdom of God surely arrived in Jesus' first advent. The kingdom arrived in his birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension and exaltation, but the kingdom of God has not yet arrived in its fullness. That's yet to come. Beginning with verse 22 and going on through the rest of the chapter, Jesus is going to be talking about his return. The consummation of the kingdom that will occur at his bodily return. And at his return, there's going to be judgment for all who've not believed on him. When the Lord Jesus returns, the Bible paints vivid pictures of Jesus' terrifying destruction of all of his enemies in places like Revelation 19. The Apostle Paul preaching on Mars Hill in Acts 17 says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has fixed a day when he's going to judge the world and he's going to judge it by means of the man he raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' first advent, he came, as he's going to say to us himself in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, to seek and to save the lost by dying on the cross. He says in John chapter 3 and verse 17, he wasn't sent into the world the first time to condemn the world, but was sent in order that the world might be saved through him. But in his second advent, he will not have been sent to die. When he comes again, he's going to come to finish the salvation in those who've believed on him and to judge and condemn and cast into the lake of fire those who have not. And his judgment at his second advent, his judgment at his second coming, at the consummation of the kingdom of God is an idea that you need to get clear if you're going to understand what Jesus is saying in the verses that are before us today. Because before he talks about the judgment that he's going to bring at his return at the end of the age, he's first going to talk about the judgment that typifies that judgment at the last day. And the judgment that typifies the judgment at the last day is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the large-scale removal of the Jews from Israel at the hands of Rome in A.D. 70. Now you'll notice that in verse 22, the audience changes. He's addressing the Pharisees' question in verses 20 and 21. But then verse 22 begins, And he said to the disciples, Jesus' teaching about the kingdom here is meant for his followers. And he says to them in verses 22 and 23, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. These are difficult verses to interpret. 
But with the help of Mark chapter 13, verse 21, which I've given you in your sermon outline as a cross-reference, Mark 13, 21 uses very similar language in the context of Jesus' teaching about the abomination of desolation. And that cross-reference to Mark 13 makes what Jesus is saying here clearer. So keep a marker in Luke 17 and turn with me to Mark 13. If you're not familiar with the Bible and your Bible is open to the Gospel of Luke, the book right before Luke is the book of Mark. So turn to the Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark, and turn to chapter 13. And then look with me at verse 21. Mark 13, 21 reads, And then if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. That sounds very much like what Jesus says back in Luke 17, 23, doesn't it? And they will say to you, Look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. And I want you to notice that Mark chapter 13 and verse 21 is in the context of Jesus teaching about, look at chapter 13 and verse 14 of Mark, the abomination of desolation. Do you see that phrase in Mark 13, 14? The abomination of desolation. For reasons that I plan to explain more fully when I preach to you from Luke chapter 21, Lord willing, I take this abomination of desolation to refer to A.D. 70, and the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But I wanted you to see Mark chapter 13 and verse 21 because it's a very helpful cross-reference for what Luke is saying in Luke chapter 17. Now go back with me to Luke 17. This cross-reference with Mark helps us to see what Jesus is referring to here in Luke 17 Verses 22 through 24. He's referring to A.D. 70. The Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which is why Jesus says in verse 22, the days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Jesus is saying that his followers, to whom he's speaking, are going to long to see his return. But they won't see it. Because A.D. 70 is not the visitation in judgment that will occur at the Son of Man's bodily, universally seen return. Now before we move on, let me say something quickly about Jesus' reference to himself as the Son of Man. This phrase, the Son of Man, that appears a number of times in our text, it's going to appear in our text next week, which is a clue that these two texts fit together. This phrase, the Son of Man, appears 82 times in the Gospels, and all but about four or five of those times, it's Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. So, around 78 times in just four books, Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. It's his most used title for himself. And when you hear Jesus use that phrase, you ought to think back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which are the verses that served as our call to worship today, where the prophet Daniel receives a night vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, was presented before him, 
And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so when Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man, particularly in passages that teach on judgment and on his return, he's alluding to Daniel's vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, the Son of Man having everlasting dominion over all the nations and having unrivaled power. But he says here in verse 22, Luke 17, that his disciples won't see the return of the Son of Man that they're longing for, his bodily return, at which time all the dead are raised and all his enemies are vanquished, and this creation undergoes a fiery transformation into the new heavens and new earth. They'll desire to see one of the days, that is the the time of, of the Son of Man, pardon but they will not see it, not as they're desiring to see it. But it will be true that at A.D. 70, when the judgment that's going to take place at Jesus' return at the last day is typified by means of his judgment on Jerusalem and the temple that there will have been, just before the Romans' conquest of Jerusalem, false prophets running about saying that they found the Son of Man. Do you see that in verse 23? These false prophets will be saying, look there, or look here. And Jesus says to his disciples, don't believe it. Don't go out and follow them, because when the Son of Man's judgment on Jerusalem comes, it will be obvious. It'll be like lightning flashing and lighting up the sky from one side to the other. This lightning that Jesus is talking about in verse 24 calls to mind Old Testament passages about when the Lord descends to earth. In Exodus chapter 19, when the nation of Israel arrives at Mount Sinai and Moses is going to go up and receive the law from God, the Bible says that when the Lord descended on Sinai, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Likewise, one chapter later in Exodus 20, when God gives the Ten Commandments, the Bible says that at Mount Sinai there was thunder and flashes of lightning and the sounds of the trumpet and the mountains smoking as the Lord spoke. So a visitation of the Lord is often accompanied by these phenomena like lightning. So the reference here in verse 24 to the lightning that's going to flash and light up the sky from one side to the other helps us to understand that A.D. 70, this abomination of desolation, is a visitation of judgment from the Lord against Jerusalem and against her false religion and her empty worship and her temple where almost no priests had faith in God and in his Messiah. But none of these things would happen before the cross, verse 25 tells us. The cross is in view when Jesus says in verse 25 that before A.D. 70, the Son of Man must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This generation among whom Jesus ministered. This generation which had seen his miracles and heard his teaching, all of which were in fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies about what the Messiah, the prophet, the son of David, Israel's king, 
was to be and do. This generation saw and heard it all, and they rejected him. He came to his own, John 1 says, and his own received him not. Not only did they not receive him, they schemed against him, as we've seen in Luke up till now. Lying in wait for him like venomous snakes, like the seed of the serpent that they were. And these Jews conspired with their sworn enemies, the occupying pagan Romans. They conspired to have the Son of Man mocked and beaten and at last nailed to a cross and killed. But that wasn't the worst. Because before judgment from heaven fell on Jerusalem in A.D. 70, it fell on Jesus. Before he judges Jerusalem and the temple at the hands of the Romans in A.D. 70, the Father's judgment on his people for our sins falls on Christ at the cross. It had to. The Son of Man, Jesus says in verse 25, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He must. If he's going to seek and save the lost, which was the reason that the Father sent his Son into the world, we talked about that at the date night from 1 John, that the Father sent his Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins, he must suffer many things. He must be the wrath-bearing, judgment-bearing atonement on the cross. He must be the burnt offering fully consumed on the cross if God would forgive his people for our sins. If we would be forgiven and made right with God, if we would have our sin burdens lifted off from us and separated from us, if God would receive us as sons and not eternally reject us as enemies, if God would turn his face toward us and not away from us, if God would forget our sins instead of remember them against us forever, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, he says. Before the judgment fell on Jerusalem and the temple, it fell at the cross on the one who will reign eternally over the new Jerusalem. It fell at the cross on the one to whom the temple pointed. Jesus knew that judgment had to fall first on him for the sins and salvation of his people. And it did on the cross. Now we're going to see in just a minute that the verses that follow, verses 26 through 30, refer, I believe, not to A.D. 70, but to the bodily return of Christ for which we are still waiting now. But Luke weaves references to A.D. 70 and the second coming of Christ throughout our passage today. But skip down with me to verse 31, where the Lord says, On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Now, I take verse 31 here of Luke 17 once again to be a reference to A.D. 70 because... That language parallels Mark 13, 15, and 16, which I've already showed you is in the context of Jesus' teaching there on the abomination of desolation. That's a reference to A.D. 70. Not only that, though, but I take Luke 17, 31 here to be a reference to Jesus' uh, 
to, uh, to the, the destruction at A.D. 70, uh, because there's going to be, you know, a, an ability for people to, to, to escape this judgment. Do you see that in verse 31? On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. When Jesus returns bodily at the end of the age in his second advent, there's going to be nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. But in A.D. 70, people living in Jerusalem could see literally the Roman army beginning to surround the city and besiege the city, and they could hurriedly escape if they heeded Jesus' warning here. And Jesus is saying here in verse 31 that when Rome descends on Jerusalem to put down the Jewish resistance to Rome, you better get out of Dodge. Don't even stop to gather your things. You leave. You escape. And there were Jews who did that. And they avoided being killed by the Romans. The last verse in our text that I understand to be a reference to AD 70 is in verse 37. And here, Matthew helps us. Because Luke 17, 37 is very much like Matthew 2428, which says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Do you see how much Matthew 2428 is like Luke 1737? And Matthew 2428 is in the context of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's gospel about the abomination of desolation, AD 70. It's tough to know exactly what Jesus' illustration means here in verse 37, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But I think a plausible interpretation is that when you see vultures circling, when you see them gathering, you know that death is near. Likewise, when Jesus' followers see the events that are going to warn them about A.D. 70, get out, you know death is near. Now, one of the things that makes Luke 17, 20 through 37 a little tricky for us is how different Luke's teaching concerning the end times are from Matthew and Mark's teaching. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus is teaching about A.D. 70 and about his second advent, his bodily return. That teaching all comes together in Matthew and Mark. In Mark, it's in chapter 13. In Matthew, it's in chapter 24. In Luke, though, there's a little teaching about the end times in chapter 12 with Jesus' warning to live ready for the master's return. And then there's some more teaching here in chapter 17. And then there's going to be yet more, as I've said, in chapter 21. Why God the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to arrange Jesus' teaching that way, I don't know. But I think the fact that these two judgment events, A.D. 70 and the day of the Lord, Christ's return, weave in and out of this text is because there's a degree to which we're not supposed to see those as separate events. Hang with me here. One is kind of the beginning of the other. That's why I've said in your sermon outline that verses 31 and 37 teach us that A.D. 70 is a harbinger. It's a type of the final destruction and judgment that will come not just on one place and on one people, but that's going to come to the whole world and to all people who have not trusted in Christ. These two judgments events, A.D. 70 and the the Christ's return, his second advent, 
are related because one teaches us and helps us to get ready for the other. Now, before we move on to Jesus' description of his second advent, maybe you want to stand up and do some jumping jacks, have a few minutes of dancing. You guys are hanging with me through some slow trekking, through some thick, thick brush here, doing a good job. Look at verse 26. In verses 26 through 30, Jesus is going to tell us about the judgment to which A.D. 70 points. The judgment that's going to accompany his return. And he says first, in verses 26 and 27, that it's going to come out of the blue, just like Noah's flood did. That is, when the flood came, people were just living their lives. They were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. They were living normal life. Not thinking that their destruction was imminent. All of that normal life, though, stopped on the day when Noah and his family got into the ark and the Lord shut the door because then the flood came and destroyed them all. You don't see here any warnings about when you hear the thunder, run to the ark. No, by the time judgment came, there was no hope of escape or rescue. Unlike Jesus' words about A.D. 70. And notice in verses 28 through 30, Jesus' return is going to come out of the blue like the destruction of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah recorded for us in Genesis 19. The folks living in those doomed cities went about their business. They were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building, all normal stuff. Until Lot and his wife and their two daughters quickly fled out of the city immediately after which the Lord rained down fire and sulfur from heaven until Sodom and Gomorrah and everyone in them were left smoldering ash heaps. The Lord, verse 29 says here, destroyed them all. And that's how it's going to be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. When the Lord Jesus returns, all the earth will see him. And when you see him, It will be as the moment when the door to Noah's ark slammed shut and when the fire and sulfur began to pummel Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord will return without warning in judgment and there will be no hope of avoiding the wrath of the Lamb, a wrath so terrible that even the mightiest on the earth in that day, kings and great ones and generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, Revelation 6 says, is going to call out to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The judgment to which AD 70 points, this judgment of the second advent, comes without warning. Like the flood like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. (coughs) I mentioned verse 31 above, so skip down with me to verses 32 through 35. This judgment at Christ's return is going to be the destruction of unbelievers. 
This very short verse, verse 32, remember Lot's wife, that could either go with verse 31 where Jesus warns those living in Jerusalem before AD 70 to flee and not turn back. Certainly Lot's wife is an illustration of what not to do in that instance, but I think verse 32 belongs with the teaching about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the context in which Lot's wife was destroyed, and I see Jesus's Allusion to Sodom and Gomorrah pertaining to the last day, pertaining to his teaching here on the last day, not A.D. 70. So what's Jesus teaching us in verse 32 with Lot's wife? Well, again, he's talking in these verses about the destroying judgment that's going to befall unbelievers when he returns. And as one commentator I saw wrote, Lot's wife was a classic example in Judaism of an unbeliever. And indeed, she was destroyed, wasn't she? She stopped to look back at the city from which she and her husband and their daughters were fleeing, and she became a pillar of salt. She was killed. Verse 33, if a person is going to be saved at Christ's return and not destroyed, it will be because he was not looking to have his best life now. Contra Joel Osteen and all the preachers of that damnable prosperity gospel. If a person will not be judged on the day when the Son of Man returns, it will be because he was happy to lose his life now. In the language of Luke chapter 14, he was happy to hate his own life, to take up his own cross, to renounce all that he has. He was happy to lose his life now and to do what Christ would have him to do, to serve Christ. But notice what Jesus says. If a person will have his own way now, that is, if a person would seek to keep his life or preserve his life by not giving his life up in service and obedience to Christ, that one will lose his life. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Preserve your life now. Have your life your way now. And lose it eternally. Be destroyed eternally in judgment. Or lose your life now. Surrender your plans and your desires to the Lordship of King Jesus now. And keep your life eternally. Escape the judgment to come. And at Christ's return, we're going to see the difference between those who made one decision and those who made the other. Notice in verses 34 and 35, at Christ's return, those who belong to the Lord are going to live life right beside those who don't. And one's going to be swept away in judgment while the other will enter the new Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus. That's what verses 34 and 35 are saying. When the Lord returns like a thief in the night, Paul says to the Thessalonians, Jesus says, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. These verses and their cross-reference back in Matthew 24, 40 and 41 have been used by some as evidence for a rapture, as portrayed in the left-behind books and movies. A belief that Christians are going to be 
raptured up to heaven before a literal seven-year global tribulation period. Those who hold to such a view belong to an interpretive camp called dispensationalism. Your elders are not dispensationalists, though if you are, you're welcome here. There are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ on both sides of this issue. But I don't think the reference here is to one person taken away in a rapture and the other person left to be judged because in Matthew chapter 24, there are two men in a field, one's taken, one's left. There's two women grinding at a mill, one's taken and one's left. And this comes immediately after Jesus talking about those who were unaware of judgment in Noah's day, quote, until the flood came and swept them all away, end quote. In the context of Matthew 24, which again is a cross-reference to what Luke says here in verses 34 and 35, it seems like the ones who were taken in Matthew 24 are not taken in some kind of salvation rapture. They're taken away in judgment. But whatever you understand the taken and left to mean, the point Jesus is making here is that his return at the last day, unlike his judgment on Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, is not going to be accompanied by warnings. It's going to come out of the blue. That's the takeaway. His judgment at the last day, friend, will come right out of the blue. Now, before I move on to application Just to head off at the past, those of you with King James or New King James Bibles who are going to want a refund for this sermon, <laughs> because you think I've shortchanged you a verse, you've noticed I haven't preached verse 36, have I? Most of the English translations don't have Luke 17, 36 or have it bracketed, uh, bracketed off. That's simply because there's reason to believe that verse wasn't in the original version of Luke's gospel that Luke wrote. And it was added by a later copyist so that what Luke says here would square with Matthew 24, 40, and 41 better. If you have a Bible that has Luke 17, 36, it says something like two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. Exactly what Matthew 24, 40 says. So its absence here doesn't at all obscure the meaning of the text that's before us today. And it's easy to see why a copyist would have thought it belonged and inserted it since it appears in Matthew's gospel. But let's talk about how you can apply this text to your life. Because I want to tell you, this is not designed to just be some intellectual exercise. You're not supposed to hear Bible teaching about the end times and go, whoa, that's really deep, that's really complex. No, the... The, the main things are plain. And I want you to keep that in mind as we think about how to make use of this text to our lives. First, among the ways you can respond to this text, if you're an unbeliever, repent and believe the gospel. I want to say to you who are outside of Christ that there is not a single thing that's delaying the Lord Jesus' return except the Father sending his Son back. And Jesus said he didn't know when that was going to happen. And so you definitely don't know when that's going to happen. 
It might not be for 10,000 years. It might not be for 10 million years. But you don't know that because it might be today. It really, really might. And unbeliever, I want to ask you, can you imagine? Can you even begin to fathom the regret that you would have for all eternity Because you plan to get around to coming to Jesus sometime. Because you assumed there would be more time. Eternity is a long time to regret, not urgently forsaking your sin and coming to Christ. There are some of you in this room we've been ministering the gospel to for a long, long time. I'm saying to you today, Urgently seek Christ. Lay hold of him like Jacob in Genesis 32 and tell him you're not letting him go until he blesses you with eternal life. Plead with him to have mercy on you until he does. Oh, my unbelieving friend, when you hear the trumpet sound and you see Christ's bodily return, it will be too late and nothing has to happen before that happens. And so I call on you to forsake your sins And believe the gospel even today. Resolve to be done with your sins. Resolve to lose your life now. Ask the Lord to be gracious to you. To give you faith to trust in his son for your salvation. I was thinking when I was preparing this message. When I was a child living in Georgia which has a lot of clay in its soil, we would take these big clods of clay, however big we could manage to pick up and throw, and we'd throw them at each other. We needed a hobby or something. And that hurt. It hurt when these clay clods would hit you. They weren't even rock, but it hurt. And I was thinking about that. Because I was thinking, how terrifying must the wrath of the Lamb be? The wrath that you'll face, unbeliever, as the just punishment for your sin if you remain stubbornly outside of Christ. How terrifying must the wrath of the Lamb be at his return so that even the mightiest cry out for the mountains and rocks to fall on them. Because being pummeled and crushed by mountains and rocks is more to be desired than facing the wrath of the Lamb. Please, beloved unbelieving friend, don't be eternally punished for your sins. Not when there's a Savior who is saying to you right now, yes, to you, To you who think he isn't talking to you. He's saying to you through the mouth of this preacher. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He's saying to you through the mouth of this preacher. Come. Everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money. Come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come. 
Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. My unbelieving friend, you respond to this text today. You respond to Jesus' warning of the coming of his kingdom in its fullness and the judgment that will come on his enemies on that day. You respond by repenting and believing the gospel today. And to you, brothers and sisters, how does saving faith respond to this text? First, I think it responds with humble, believing, waiting. By humble, I mean not arrogantly assuming you're going to be found in Christ at the last day because of some past piety and ignoring the need to continue to pursue Christ all your life, to continue in him, not to fall back, not to throw your walk with the Lord in neutral or on cruise control. Jesus says that those who endure to the end, those are the ones who are going to be saved at his return. So my brothers and sisters, respond to this text with humble longing to continue to be found in Christ each day, all the way to the end. Continue to pursue him and to seek him with all the means that he's given to you. And respond with believing waiting. I want to ask you Christians, do you really believe that Jesus could come back at any time? I mean, do you really believe that? In the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, those are all petitions that will be answered at Christ's return. When we make those petitions, we're praying for Christ's return. And when you offer the Lord's Prayer and when you offer those petitions, you ought to be so believing in Christ's return that you expect to hear the trumpet before you can even finish praying. I had a dear, dear professor in seminary who was obsessed in the healthiest, most encouraging way with Christ's return. That say, Dr. Miller's expecting the Lord to return so soon he doesn't even buy green bananas. Christian, don't be like the scoffers in 2 Peter 3 who say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Don't be like those scoffers. Let each morning you wake up bring with it the anticipation that today could be the day. When you go to bed at night, go to sleep half expecting to be awakened by the trumpet of the Lord. And when you start living your life with your eyes ever upward, living with an eager expectation of Christ's anytime return, it can't help but increase your joy and your contentment. Think about as your kids, if you have kids, get closer and closer each day to a big vacation you've been planning. Their anticipation increases, doesn't it? Well, today we're one day closer to Christ's return than we were yesterday. 
And living with believing expectation, it's going to impact your irritability and your discouragement because your mind's going to be dwelling more regularly on the day when you will, in an immortal, incorruptible, resurrection body, be seeing the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, embracing bodily the one whom your soul loves. So respond to this text today, brother and sister, with humble Believing, waiting. And lastly, we respond to this text, Christians, by laboring to bring others with us. I want to echo what my brother Greg shared. I was so proud of you and thankful for you Friday night at date night at the Barnes. As Eric said, more than a quarter of the folks who came were people who don't belong to CMC or to Redeeming Grace Church, who had a nice contingent there. And it was fun for Sarah and me to interact with those guests and to see you interact with them, whether they were your guests or not. And you know those friends of yours heard the gospel, and they got to be around people, didn't they, who were indwelt by the Holy Spirit and who love each other and love Christ and love the gospel and love being spent for the gospel's advance. That was a good use of your time and effort. When you receive a warning like you have today from Christ, a loving response is to warn others too. And we warn others of the judgment to come. When we work to get the gospel to them, with women's investigative Bible studies, or by bringing them to men's night, or to mom connections, or campus impact, Or when you, youth group students, bring a friend of yours to youth group or to the youth retreat. You know, at these monthly Friday morning men's rally points, we are seeing the Lord answer in real time the prayers that we're offering for our lost friends and family members by name. And we're spending that time putting our heads together on effective ways to evangelize. Be a part of those events, men, if only to join your prayers with ours. Labor to get to know your neighbors. Labor to have friendships with non-Christians for the sake of gospel outreach. Does Does that sound manipulative to you? Does that sound like friendship with a means to an end? Does that sound like making a person your project? Don't apologize for that. It is the most loving thing you can do to build a bridge to someone so that you can tell them that judgment is coming but that salvation is available to them through faith in Christ who died and was raised for his people. And so respond to this text, Christian, by laboring to help others escape judgment at the return of the Son of Man. There's another way that we apply this text, but Jesus gives it to us in the form of a parable, and that's next week's sermon. The Lord Jesus is the Son of Man. He inaugurated his kingdom when he came to earth as a baby in Bethlehem, and as he taught and performed miracles and died for his people and was raised again, and... He will usher in his kingdom in its fullness at the last day. 
Is today that day? It might be. Spring has sprung, and spring is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we who have believed get to live with the sure hope of your son's return. And yet we remain so desirous that those who would be judged if your son returned right now, we remain desirous that while there is still time, you give them eyes to see their sin and to turn from their sin and believe on Christ for salvation. Thank you for the words from your son today. Help us to believe them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.